All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for your patience with us as we continue to digest said truth. Thank you for giving us good health. Uh, that's not a given in this world, Father. Thank you so much for reminding us of all the things that we have to be grateful for. We know that it's from a basis, a wellspring of your love, Father, that these things flow. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us due to illness, and we just pray that you return them back to us so that we might fellowship with them. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that before it's too late that you humble them and that they are evangelized and we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ with us forever and ever. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this one a reality. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. I almost changed the title this morning, but, um, and you'll see why. But uh, the Spirit has a lot to say on one particular topic, as we'll see. Uh, I want to finish up, though, our passage from Proverbs. We've been reading Proverbs 1 and 2, and I've been promising to get to Proverbs 3, but we've always run out of time. So I want to finish that work up this morning uh, by finishing up with Proverbs 3 before we press into the key theme of this morning's message. And just as a side note, uh, I suggest and highly encourage you to go home and read Proverbs 1 through 3 in one sitting. Uh, I don't have the license to do it or the time. Time is precious behind the pulpit, as you know. Uh, it would take us quite a, a bit of time to do that, but I would encourage it just for the, the sake of the big picture in your own soul so that big picture uh, can be cemented in your own soul. Uh, with that said, go to Proverbs 3, verse 1. Proverbs 3, verse 1, we'll finish up that work and then we'll press on. Remember how we entered into uh, Proverbs in the first place? It was We had an emphasis on the fear of the Lord and uh, any wisdom from the Bible really is uh, premised on the fear of the Lord. Without the fear of the Lord, uh, it's impossible to gain wisdom. That's what we've learned so far, because it's vapid, if you would, of uh, that baseline. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> Proverbs 3, verse 1. <clears throat> my son, do not forget my teaching. In other words, fear the Lord. That's what we've been noting in the first two chapters my son, do not forget my teaching. For example, fear the Lord, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. That's a very interesting conclusion, isn't it? Keep my commandments and peace, uh, they will add to you. In other words, obedience results in peace. That's another theme over the last year or so that obedience results in something called peace. And peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness 
and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. Again, fear Him is in view. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Uh, it's quite possible, as I was reading that this morning, reviewing my notes, I was thinking about this congregation. And look around, there's a lot of empty seats today. And some of them are legitimate based on illness. Uh, some not. Some are ill for other reasons. What I know from Holy Scripture is that it's quite possible that some of you have been physically ill in the past or maybe even presently because of your lack of fear of the Lord. You may be, uh, this, uh, this physical illness may be a manifestation of being disoriented to truth. And that's something that the Bible teaches us. It teaches the converse there in verse 8. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Verse 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. Again, based on the fact that Scott's had to get up here several times uh, this past year to mention a budget deficit uh, means that only some of you are abiding in this wisdom. Only some of you. I know not. this isn't the case with all of you, but some of you this is true. Otherwise, Scott wouldn't have to uh, be up here ever. Uh, and I wouldn't have to mention it from the pulpit ever. Uh, Luke 6.38 up here on the board in the Amplified reads, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over with no space left for more. And this is if you give. This is what the Bible teaches us. Give and it will be given to you. For with the standard of measurement you use, when you do good to others, it will be measured to you in return. That's pretty plainly stated doctrine, is it not? Again, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over with no space left for more. For with the standard of measure you use, when you do good to others, it will be measured to you in return. This same wisdom is here in Solomon's words, and it makes sense, too, uh, given that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, uh, today, and forever. It makes total sense that this is in Solomon's wisdom, Solomon's words, as we read Proverbs 3, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it is His mind we are dining on when we read Holy Scripture, inspired by His Spirit. Remember that. And so wisdom doesn't change. Jesus Christ, His mind has always been the same. Uh, from eternity past, it's been the same. And so when Solomon writes something that's familiar to us, it makes total sense. Again, verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. 
we have an abundance of wealth in the United States. Anybody disagree? If you do, you can go on the next missionary trip with us. And we'll see how that resets your standard of measure. We have an abundance of wealth in this country. Even the so-called poor among us are much wealthier than the predominant um, population of the world. Again, verse 9. So from that abundance, is it really that difficult to abide in verse 9? I don't think so. Honor the Lord, what and how? From your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So, you see, here's the point. It's not even if the Spirit has left us hanging. So, the result is, your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. And as a side note, God disciplines his own differently than he does unbelievers. Uh, think about that. That uh, echoes of this week's blog, which was titled Temple Invasion, had everything to do with uh, sexual sins, um, that a certain discipline is on believers that is unique. Again, what do we read here in verse 12? For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. And so the point is that God disciplines his own uh, differently than uh, unbelievers even. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights, with the right perspective, even discipline produces security. Verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, speaking of wisdom here, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are what? Peace. Again, you see, fearing the Lord leads to peace. Remember the uh, impetus behind so much of Solomon's writing here. His wisdom writings was to uh, amplify this fear of the Lord, that when you have a certain healthy fear of the Lord, uh, you are brought to peace. Verse 17, wisdom, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up. Excuse me. And the skies drip with dew. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. In other words, the fear of the Lord extinguishes ungodly fear. And you need to dwell on that because there's a lot of people, maybe some of you even listening to my voice this morning, that didn't sleep that well last night. Why? Because you had a certain anxiety or a fear, uh, an unhealthy fear, maybe divorced from fear of the Lord. Maybe you don't have the confidence like our 
uh, series title speaks of confidence in the Lord. Maybe you're missing out on these things because when God uh, attempts to give you grace, uh, you reject it and you choose something from the world, some kind of a counterfeit that runs counter to the fear of the Lord. And so you lay in bed at night with your own set of fears keeping you awake. And that's not uh, peace at all. Again, verse 24, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Verse 25, do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence. That is the title of our series. This is where, uh, this was the genesis of the title of our series, uh, whether you knew that or not. It took us, what, seven parts to get here. But in my own personal studies, this is how we ended up on this series. It was this particular verse. After reading wisdom verse upon wisdom verse and getting through chapters 1 and chapter 2 and getting to chapter 3, this popped out and the Spirit said this is going to be the next series. But again, it was on the coattails of, all re of realizing the fear of the Lord was basically the preeminent factor uh, behind uh, wisdom itself. And so verse 26 reads, For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So there we have our message or our series now titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. And the Spirit's had an awful lot to say on this topic seven hours already and we're not done so we must look to him for strength and guidance if the Lord is our confidence the conclusion is that we must look to him for strength and guidance now on this topic for whatever reason and it's only been the latter part of this series uh, for whatever reason the Spirit has given us a lot to chew on regarding the topic of fatherhood fatherhood uh, you might argue I would argue from my position being a, a 50 year old American that just about everybody I know uh, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek has daddy issues somewhere along the line their father uh, either just all out sucked excuse my French or just wasn't doing his job uh, and certainly certainly in today's day and age didn't raise uh, their children in the faith. And so what do you have? You have a bunch of people that are self-medicating at night because they can't sleep, because they're anxious about everything. They don't have fear in the Lord. They have fear in everything else but the Lord. And part of the blame rests on the fathers who are supposed to be heading up the households in the faith. And when whole households depart from the faith, you end up with young uh, children, men and women, with daddy issues that grow up with daddy issues, that drag these issues throughout their lives, and that's why they can't sleep at night, and that's why many of them to this day are self-medicating, and that's what keeps liquor stores and pot shops, and now they're legal, of course, uh, in business. And that's a shame. We shouldn't need those kinds of crutches. We should arrive at our own peace based on the Word of God. That's what this is all about. We have a healthy respect, a fear of the Lord. We shouldn't need self-medication that seems to be the way of America and it's 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 a goofy thing to think about because everybody else in the world is trying to be like America thinking once they arrive with all the prosperity 
that they're not going to need or they're not going to be sad anymore. They're not going to be anxious anymore. They won't be striving anymore. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. The things you own end up owning you. Uh, wake up, my friends. Uh, America's great, but without the right perspective, you lose. Again, on this topic, for whatever reason, the Spirit has given us a lot to chew on regarding the topic of fatherhood. And he's been knitting this confidence that we're speaking of and fatherhood together. He's finding a common ground. He wants us to see a common ground between this confidence and the elements of fatherhood in our lives. And as I've laid it out so far, uh, based on Holy Scripture, there are three. There's the Father in heaven, there's your earthly fathers, and then there's the Father that's the type of Father that's speaking to you right now, a shepherd. So we need to investigate this a little bit more. From our midweek messages, we receive this principle up here on the board. We talked about 1 Timothy, which is a, a pastoral epistle, which speaks directly to the responsibilities of pastors. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. See here that a father must first prove himself worthy in his own household because the analog to his household fatherhood is the fatherhood he has over the household of faith. In other words, if you're no good, if you can't pass the first test, why in the world would I give you a greater responsibility called a church or a congregation? If you can't take care of your own household, I'm certainly not going to promote you as a pastor. And that's one of the criteria we have to look at uh, as an individual in my position. If someone comes up to me and says, I think I have the gift of pastor teacher. Okay, how's your household doing? And sadly, many times, it's in disarray. And that immediately disqualifies them. Immediately. Because how am I going to say, how am I going to train that person up if they can't take care of their own home? If their kids have daddy issues, if their wives are completely disgruntled with nothing to respond to. Because the, the father or the husband is a wimp and has no real faith or no fear of the Lord. How do I promote that? That's just a disaster waiting to happen if I put that individual behind this pulpit. So see here that a father must uh, first prove himself worthy in his own household because the analog to his household fatherhood is the fatherhood he has over the household of faith. Only a fool rejects this wisdom. And remember, wisdom's crying in the street. You're hearing wisdom right now. Wisdom cries in the street. It's not like it's unavailable to you. It's always available. It wants to be heard. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 1.21, it's crying from the street corners even. The key word, though, is foolish. And it's been a steady, uh, it's been steadying itself in the spotlight as of late. I'll give you an old friend of ours from a few messages back, Ephesians 5.17. We're warned, so then do not be foolish. And the Greek word is aphron. It means to lack perspective because of short-sightedness. Lacking the big picture perspective needed to act prudently. That's what foolish and aphron means. That so then do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's part of the fear of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? Do I respect it? Fear and respect are close relatives, remember, in the Bible. Do I respect what the Lord has to say through Holy Scripture? It is His Word, after all, and it was His Spirit that ordained it and even authored it. 
So I want you to concentrate for a moment on this topic of uh, fatherhood, and especially this third one is in view, the fatherhood uh, over the household of faith. I want you to synthesize a few things for me up here on the board. Remember this. It was the Spirit of the Lord who gives spiritual gifts, like this one, like a pastor. It's the Spirit of the Lord who gives spiritual gifts. He has never once made a mistake in his eternal existence. So it's not like he made an oopsie. Governance over the body of Christ is defined by him. It is our job to obey. Perfectly is our intent, but we know that we never get there until heaven. So uh, synthesize these four things. The Spirit gives gifts. He's never made a mistake in doing so. He's laid out the governance over the body of Christ, and he's put certain individuals uh, in fatherly positions of authority. Uh, and it's our job to obey the authority because we know what the Bible says, that all authority is ordained by God. Specifically, this same spirit has called this congregation's attention to my role in your life. And frankly, I don't like having these conversations. I like them in the sense that it might iron something out in your soul, but I don't like that kind of attention necessarily. Um, but nonetheless, specifically as of late, this same spirit that's ordained all of these things and has commanded each one of you to obey and submit to authority has, a, has a, called all of your attention even my own, to my role in your life, not just as an overseer, but as, as a shepherd over individual souls. Up here on the board, this is from our past week of messages, the weight of shepherdhood. With great power comes great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12.48 gives us that. The shepherd-sheep relationship is very unique and personal, not just corporate, which means no one has the right to defile, diminish, or intrude upon it. I should have access to each one of you. And no one has the right to defile, diminish, or intrude upon that very truth. It's ungodly, and it's usually a form of some other something that's wrong, in an individual's soul. Uh, our great shepherd's heart referred to his sheep as little children even. He's our great shepherd. That is the relationship that he presumed over his sheep. He called them little children. He was speaking. Do you think he was, he was 30 to 33 years old in his ministry? Do you think there weren't people older than him that he referred to as little children? So we have to get beyond our earthly boundaries. This is a position of fatherhood, a position that he took. And he used the language specifically, little children, in John 13, 33, as we noted. The Apostle John also used this same language. I'll go through these quickly with you uh, as a point of review, because we reviewed these on Thursday. First <clears throat> John 2, 1, part A, my little children, this is John writing, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
1 John 3, verse 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. 1 John 3, 18, Again, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That feels like a summary of what I've been uh, tasked to teach you over the last few years. That let's stop being you know, uh, lip or gum flappers, and let's start doing. Let's get out there and, and do for the Lord, not just talk, not just come to church on a Sunday when it's nice out or when you feel like it or when you've got some spare time or read your Bible on occasion. How about we actually do as uh, John inspired us to do when he said, little children, let us not love with word or tongue. That seems a lot easier, but indeed and in truth. 1 John 4.4 4 reads this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 John 4.4 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And so a good father encourages his family as well. Doesn't exasperate them, as Holy Scripture teaches as well. So uh, as uh, Scott mentioned on Tuesday, uh, fatherhood, much of fatherhood is about balance, and that's what we see in Holy Scripture. Anyways, this type of affection that our great shepherd revealed while on earth is evident in the apostles' writing as well. All of them, actually, we've been focusing on John, but if you look closely and you read uh, the words or you hear the words of the apostles, you certainly do see the same attitude of affection towards the flock. Up here on the board, little children, this is a term of affection used by both Jesus and the Apostle John, among others, of course. It reveals the nature of the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. While there's a corporate responsibility to the flock, each individual sheep is accounted for and tended to. You may not see it. You may say, geez, I wonder if my pastor even cares about me. I, can, I love you. That's the God's honest truth. I may not know everything about you. I don't really want to. But suffice to say that I know enough about you. I may even be talking behind your back, not in a bad way. I do that very often with people that are close to me. I'll ask about you from them because they're closer to you than I am. And I'll ask more than one person, so I won't just take their estimate. And then I might approach you, et cetera, et cetera. We get uh, our uh, input in a variety of ways. But you should know that I do care about each one of you as individuals. And therefore, that is part of my job to tend to you that way. If you don't believe that, let's look at a familiar parable where the shepherd-sheep relationship is the basis for one of Jesus' key messages. Go to Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. <clears throat> Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Imagine that. Imagine that. All the tax collectors and the sinners, these are the dregs of society, of course, were coming to him or near him to listen to him. 
both the Pharisees, the uppities, if you would, the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Think about it. One sheep out of a hundred is lost, and the true shepherd can't rest until he brings it back into the fold. One out of a hundred. A lesser person, someone without a certain spiritual gift, might go, hmm, 1% loss. I can, I can deal with it. Someone who doesn't have a fatherly type bent to their very being might chalk it up as a what? Acceptable loss. We can't do that. Shepherds aren't like that. My heart breaks. The biggest thing for me always is to see someone fade away from the faith. I have no problem. If you go to another church that's teaching truth, I, I tend to keep in touch with you, ask you how things are going, and I encourage it. But if you just fade away from the faith, my heart breaks open. And those are the, things, those are the times when I weep in private. Why? Because it's horrible to think about someone leaving behind the very best that life has to offer in Christ Jesus. It's a complete tragedy. I'd rather see someone turn into a bum on the street and not lose faith than someone to become a bazillionaire overnight and somehow leave the faith. It's the old saying, what will a person um, choose if they forfeit their soul? What What would a person choose over forfeiture of their soul. One sheep out of a hundred is lost, and the true shepherd can't rest until he brings it back into the fold. My friends, this is what true love looks like. This is what true love looks like. And I was thinking about that, and I invite you to do the same. How many times has someone claimed to love you? a good place to start. How many times has someone claimed to love you only for you to find out eventually that it was nothing more than a selfish, fleshly love? A love that, once your utility to that person was exhausted, suddenly went away. Sadly, this is real sad, to think about, but it's a fact of life. Sadly, one of the most common areas of this type of love is with children who use their parents. With children who use their parents. Look around. Kids are, in general, selfish lovers. They pour a type of love all over their parents for as long as the parents can and do 
do stuff for them, you know, can still afford to give to them. And then when the parents need the kids, the kids are nowhere to be found. But you know where you'll always find that type of person? And I'm including adult children, of course. They can always be found using and manipulating the next person to exhaustion, sucking them dry for all they're worth. And in those moments, you know what they're doing? Smiling and carrying on and saying, I love you. Sucking them dry for all they're worth. It's disgusting. But I know some of you parents out there understand this all too well. And I'm not saying it'll ever change your love for them. That's not the point on the table. This is just an observable example for us to chew on. And in a way, I'm sorry to bring up such an ugly topic, but selfish lovers and users are, by default, always someone's child. Right? Selfish lovers are always someone's kid. It just might happen to be yours. I hope you get the point the Spirit's making here. As is the case in the parable of the lost sheep, true love from a shepherd is selfless. Selfless. It is parental by nature, which is what fatherhood or why father, fatherhood has been brought to the forefront lately. A good father or a good parent even is a wonderful analog to a good Christian. This is, these are our examples, are they not? Are we not told to imitate the faith? Are we not to be raised up that way? Are these father figures or parental figures, are they not our first introduction to good things in life? You bet. Up here on the board, Christian love, the hallmark of Christ-like love is selflessness. Selflessness. That is the hallmark of Christ-like love. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives, if we're to personify it, it lives for others. That's what Christian love, I mean true biblical Christian love looks like. And when I'm saying Christian, look at the first, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six letters in Christ. No extra charge. Look at the first six letters in Christian. It's Christ's love we're after. Christ-like love is selflessness. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others, even derives its joy and its peace through living for others. Doesn't mean it's going to be reciprocated. Ask any parent who's been a good parent and they've got a jerk of a kid. There's only so much you can do. Everybody reports to the Lord themselves as individuals, including kids. But nonetheless, this kind of love lives for others. And some might be proclaim, some of you even now, 
I do, I do live for others. I do. But the challenge is quite large, my friends, far beyond merely reciting words from the Bible, as John would say up here on the board, 1 John 3.18, I'll give you the Amplified to help. Little children, believers, dear ones, let us not love merely in theory, with word or with tongue, giving lip service to compassion, but in action and in truth, in practice and in sincerity, because practical acts of love are more than words. Let me know when you're ready. I just lost my slides. <coughs> Again, the challenge to godly living, uh, godly loving is quite large. Are we ready? Let me just try it and see what happens. Sorry, people. I'm back. Let me see if I can flick them. Yeah. Again, 1 John 3.18 in the Amplified. Little children, believers, dear ones, let us not love merely in theory with word or with tongue, giving lip service to compassion. Can you imagine just for a moment if, if um, your parents growing up, and let's assume you think at least reasonably well of your parents, all of a sudden just started talking and then never did anything. I promise to take care of you. Um, can I have some lunch money? No. I'm just going to tell you I'm going to take care of you, but I'm actually never going to take care of you. Hey, we're going to go school shopping someday. I know I realize your pants are up to your kneecaps. We haven't been shopping. I know it's, you know, eighth grade. We haven't been shopping since the third. Um, I just, you know, I'll get you a little belt extension. We'll be good, right? I promise to take care of you, but I'm never going to. Can you imagine that? You'd be so affronted, right? Hmm. What do you think John's getting at here? Stop gum flapping. But in action and in truth, in practice and in sincerity, because practical acts of love are more than words. Again, the challenge to godly loving is quite large. And it is far beyond merely reciting words from the Bible. So you need to concentrate, and this is, a, this is probably the pivotal principle this morning up here on the board. And this, is, this might be an aha moment for some of you, I don't know. But if it's not, some of you it needs to be. Let's put it that way. Christian love, living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. It means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective, their limitations, their spiritual growth, their current estate of you name it. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. Let me repeat it. Living for others, and I hope you get what I'm trying to say here. Living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. And that is a malady that lives and breathes in just about every, well, not just about, every person I've ever known, including myself, when I look in the mirror. I have to catch myself and say, that may seem good to you from your perspective, 
but from their perspective, it's not good at all. And so how am I going to live to their benefit if all I ever do is look at things from my perspective? Some of you cannot get out of your own way. Let me put it that way. All you can think about, the way you look at the world, is always through your own, I'm going to use the word, selfish lens. All you ever do is look at the world through your own self-absorbed, egocentric lens. The same egocentrism that dominated you when you were one year old and you cried and screamed about everything and the world needs to revolve around me has persisted into your adulthood. And you still look at that, everything and everyone else, through your own lens, as if the world revolves around you. It's one of the great perspectives of becoming a parent. Andrew, you're going to learn this very quickly. That the world doesn't revolve around you. That the way you survive parenthood is by realizing that these little buggers have their own perspective on things. And what are you going to do? Beat a one-year-old into submission? I told you not to spit your food out. What are you going to do? No, you have to take on their perspective. They're too young and stupid. So that's why you keep having to remind him, like literally a hundred times a day, not to do that thing. And then you do this number. Don't touch it. Now, if you did that, if that was, if that was me, you'd be like, what's wrong with this guy? Right? <laughs> you would expect more from an individual, a grown-up. But what I've learned, and even in the ministry, is that you can't always. That there's a lot of egocentric people out there that go through this life moaning and groaning about everybody else when they're the common variable. They're the ones that can't get out of their own way. They're the ones who are still egocentric like they were when they were children. And that's really the cause of so much of their own personal pain. They can never understand how somebody else could be that way. They never really consider things from someone else's perspective. And because of that, they're in bondage to their own. Does that make sense? They're in bondage to a limited viewpoint of the world. And one of the great things I've learned, and I'm just speaking in humility, I'm saying I've arrived, but one of the greatest gifts is diversity, even in thought, seeing beauty. If all, I, if all we did was live through our own perspective, I'm going to stand on this side of the rose bush, and maybe I'm on the shady side, and there's like a nub and a thorn, and some other stuff, and you're on the other side. If I never take your perspective, I never see the roses. I see the back side of them, I see a nub, and I go, okay. And I live miserably. But if I am willing to open up and get out of my own way, move around to the other side from your perspective, maybe I see more beauty. Maybe you know something I don't know. That's a beautiful, wonderful blessing. But if you're too caught up and hung up on your own way of life and you refuse and you're stubborn like some of you are, then you suffer. And remember what Christian love looks like. We abide in the sphere of it. It's not a unidirectional thing. It's not a one-way street. It's a sphere we live in. It's 360 degrees. Living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. It means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. And frankly, this requires discipline 
integrity, and humility. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8, 9 to 13, 9, 9, 19 to 23, and Matthew 5, 38 to 48. But here's what I want you to think about. When I use the word discipline here, this means that you must train yourself to practice thinking of others first. It's not natural. It's not natural to think of other people first. What's the first thing, what's the first thing we do when stimuli comes at us? We do this number, right? We stand there a lot of, uh-oh. We become like a shortstop in baseball. We get on the balls of our feet. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Change position once in a while. So discipline requires training and practice to think of others first because it's unnatural. Integrity, this means that you evaluate every circumstance honestly and with a biblical lens, biblical standards in view only, only. That's what integrity looks like. Honestly, with a biblical lens. And what you'll find out many, many times is a biblical lens is 180 degrees from your own. And then in humility, this means that whatever conviction befalls you, even if it's, quote, against you, you abide by it, submitting to the Spirit's guidance. Whatever conviction befalls you, you abide by it. Submitting to the Spirit's guidance. Again, this is the principle that we have. Living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them. From your own perspective, it means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. Think about Jesus. He dined with prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. Do you think he didn't consider their perspective? Do you think he didn't realize how weak they were? Imagine if he just said, I can't dine with you. I, I, I'm going to be like these snobby jerks. I, I can't dine with you until you clean up your acts. Of course not. He said, you are weak. You're sick. You need a physician. I realize you're sick. You need a physician. Imagine going to your doctor's office. and He goes, I feel great. What's your problem? <laughs> no, get out. Thanks for my 150 bucks. Right? Next. I feel great. What's your problem? Out. What's the very first thing a doctor does, any physician? What's your perspective on this situation? Why are you feeling this way? How are you feeling? You look good to me, but how are you feeling? Oh, doc, I don't feel so well. Hmm. I don't see it. Get out. <laughs> Wouldn't you be like, wait a minute, what? This is the worst doctor in history? Why do you laugh? But that's what we do. People come to us. We have, a, we have the ability to apply a little ointment from the word, maybe, on their soul. A little compassion, right? We say, I don't see it, get out. Since I don't see it, it's not real. That's what an egocentric person thinks, right? The world revolves around them. If they don't see it, it doesn't exist. I don't see it, it's not real, get out. Can you imagine if I was like that? There'd be about maybe one of you and you'd be an idiot to still be here. Right? For real, I don't see it. What's the problem? Get out. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Keep these things in mind as we read our reference 
passages now. I'm telling you, it takes discipline, integrity, and humility. You have to train yourself. It may even it may even feel clunky in the beginning, but do it. First Corinthians eight nine. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Again, the context here is uh, the whole issue back then with eating food, sacrificed to idols. People had huge hang-ups, obviously. But the principle for all of us is here. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul could have just walked in there and go, I know better. You're all a bunch of idiots. I'm going to eat up. Did he do that? No. What did he do? He looked at it from someone else's perspective. He said, there are some really weak individuals here, still stuck in religion of the day, still have hang-ups. But that's not what I'm going to uh, call out at the outset here. I'm going to do whatever it takes so that they don't stumble, so that I might evangelize them, so I might assure their faith in Christ Jesus. Same thing we saw with Jesus when he sat down with sinners and tax collectors and what have you. Paul's attitude from a position of strength, wisdom, and discernment was that it was best for him not to do something that he had every right to do. That he had every right to do. do you, are you mandated, I mean, strictly speaking, are you mandated to listen to someone else's problems? Say someone's having a bad day. Are you mandated? No. You could just say, I got something to do. Right? Or you start doing that, and I'm be like, you're literally in your living room, you're like, going through a tunnel. I've never done that. I really haven't. Sometimes I wish I could, but. I'm going to create an app. It's called the Tunnel App. I, I literally thought of this the other day. Tell me if you think it's going to fly. Listen, on your phone, right, what it does is when you stop wanting to talk to somebody, you hit the tunnel app, right, and it, goes, it cuts your phone conversation in and out and throws them up. Right? It would work. I'm going to be a bazillionaire. I think it would work, the tunnel app, I'm telling you. Get rid of everybody. I don't know where I was. Okay, we'll get back to it. This is what happens. Paul's attitude from a position of strength, wisdom, and discernment was that it was best for him not to do something that he had every right to do. I know what I'm saying. Do you have, the right to, do you, do you have a right to walk away from someone that maybe wants to open up? You do. Nobody can force you to stay there. You have every right. It's your free will. Is it the right thing to do? No. No, it's not. You have a right to do it, but it's not right. Does that make sense? A lot of people will claim, I have the right to do this thing. But it's not right, my friend. I have a right to do this thing. 
but it's not right. Again, think about what we just read with Paul in the point on the board. Living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them. From your own perspective, it means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. Living for others always considers the estate of others. Always. It doesn't mean we ever compromise biblical living because the second point there, or the integrity, must be maintained, of course. We never compromise biblical living. Rather, it simply means that sacrifice becomes a way of life. Living for others always considers the estate of others. And whenever you do that, especially when you're in a position of strength, sacrifice is part of the game. You have to sacrifice very often it's liberties, certain liberties, that you're free, that you really do have a right to exercise. But you realize, once you get outside of your own, or away, out of your own way, once you understand where someone weaker than you is, is looking at a situation, you're able to sacrifice those liberties, to bring them along, to encourage them. Again, this is why good parenting is a wonderful analog to Christian loving. Most so-called Christians use the word sacrifice in place of something fleshly. For example, is a sacrifice really a sacrifice if the motivation is wrong? For example, if it's to garner attention for self, is that a pure sacrifice? Is that really living for others? Or is it still about you? Again. Again. You can even turn the art of sacrifice into something for you. That's what selfish love looks like. That's what an egocentric person does. They just sort of shoehorn everything into their perspective. Paul was very accustomed to sacrifice at every level. Go to our second passage, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Paul was very accustomed with sacrifice. I mean, he obviously knew a lot more than his audiences did, as a general rule. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, uh, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. You see that? To the weak I became weak. You know what's implied there? A change of perspective. Getting out of your own way. Breaking away from your position, and here the context is a position of strength, to one of weakness. And when you change your perspective, and a rose bush is a good example, when you change your perspective, the vantage point always changes. All of a sudden, everything's different. Same rose bush, right? Different perspective. All of a sudden, everything changes. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men. In other words, I'm the most pliable person you'll ever want to meet. 
Most shepherds are. You may think I'm dogmatic and I get carried away and that kind of a thing, but you're missing the point if that's what you think of me. Most shepherds are much, much more pliable than you can possibly imagine. Most parents have to be super pliable to be good at the job. Why? Because children have their own ideas about the world, do they not? The world revolves around me. I don't know if you big people realize it, but this is the way it is in my world. So I'm going to throw a fit in Target, and I'm going to embarrass the hell out of you. So everybody looks until I get my way. You better be pliable as a parent. They all, hey, you're the last person to look at me. I'm like, look at me, hurry up. <laughs> you better be pliable. You have to be pliable. You have to be pliable in any form of leadership because everybody's all over the place. Paul said, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Again, we've got to live from, not from our own perspective, but considering the perspective of others. Now remember our launching pad, and I'm getting close to running out of time here. Remember our launching pad here was our consideration of a shepherd's love for his sheep. And for whatever reason, the Spirit has been bringing this up this past week. The idea of fatherhood, a type of fatherhood, in particular a shepherd's love for his sheep. And that so often a shepherd is compelled to go fetch his sheep out of the thicket, sacrificing a few cuts of his own, bruises and exhaustion along the way. Why? Because true love cannot help but express itself selflessly. Selflessly. Again, the hallmark of true love is up here on the board. The hallmark of Christ-like love is selflessness. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others. What's the Spirit getting at here? Think about that for a moment. What's the Spirit getting at here this morning? He certainly put a lot to think about uh, on the table. Let me see if I can help tie this together for you, and I'm not promising that I'll do a perfect job of it. I think, as is always the case, you have to go home and think about this. And if it requires you re-listening to the message, then do it. Wow, an extra hour out of your day. Imagine that. But I'll try. First, he's saying that you need to have a certain love and respect for your shepherd, even considering him a type of father in your life. The Spirit's been telling you all that he's given you a special gift, and that gift is speaking to you right now. He's confirming that your fears, to the contrary, are falsely held, and that this man speaking to you now really does love you and has and will continue to lay down his life for you. He's also saying that not a single one of you, not even his wife, understands fully what he does for you. Not one of you. The personal sacrifices he makes, not just as a 
congregation or for a congregation, but for individuals. Not one of you understands that, and I'm per perfectly fine with that. And just as a side note for you arrogant people out there, this is not Ed Collins trying to gather up some kind of unhealthy approbation from you. May it never be. I'm simply being transparent. Nothing more, nothing less. And I say this with complete transparency. If you think my motivation here is anything but honorable, I'm begging you to never come through the doors again. Honest to God. I don't want you here. If you think my, my intentions are anything but honorable, I'm begging you, don't come through those doors again. For your own sake, not mine. I'm not going to be wounded. For your own sake. Go find somebody that you can submit to the way the Bible tells you to. Otherwise, let me give you some Holy Scripture on this topic. Up here on the board. Hebrews 13.7 in the Amplified Classic reads, Remember your leaders and superiors in authority, for it was they who brought you to the word of God. Observe attentively and consider their manner of living, the outcome of their well-spent lives, and imitate their faith, their conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ, and their leaning of the entire human personality on God in absolute trust and confidence in His power, wisdom, and goodness. Now, with that on the table, let's just think about this some more. By now, you know that I'm under attack pretty much daily. Pretty much daily. That's a daily occurrence. I believe in probably every shepherd's life, any true shepherd anyways. The assault is exhausting most days because it grates on my soul. So think about this. As we just noted in Hebrews 13, 7, you are to imitate, and that's the Greek word mimeomai. Remember, that's where we get mimeograph even from. You are to imitate my faith. In other words, if I can do this by the grace of God, so can you. If I can do this by the grace of God, so can can you. And if, if, if I can somehow make it through each attack without responding in a way that degrades the name of Jesus, then so can you. Now let's allow Jesus to explain this subtlety I'm getting at here. Go to Matthew 5, verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. Matthew 5:38. Can't believe I'm just out of time almost. How are you guys doing? Any huge coffees? Andrea, you still going good? Andrea, you're, you're playing roulette. Pregnant and a large? I don't know. Oh, all right, you guys holding up? All right, good. Matthew, because I'm not stopping. Matthew 5:38. <coughs> I was just curious. Excuse me, Matthew. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to stop because I'm being a pump. See, this is what the Spirit does. Oh, yeah? I'm going to gag you up there. <clears throat> Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take his shirt, 
let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, who, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, let's continue just a little bit further. I really do want to close out a couple of thoughts here. Uh, otherwise, we'll have just too many dangling threads. Up here on the board, this has been an anchor principle this morning. Again, on Christian love, the hallmark of Christ, Christ-like love is selflessness. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others, as we just noted with Jesus. It lives for others, even when the others are our enemies. Even when the others are people we may not even like. We are given shepherds. Think about this. Step back. Think about the big picture. Think about how gracious the Lord has been in your life. We are given shepherds to help us persevere when we're feeling weak. Dwell on that. We are given shepherds to help us persevere when we're feeling weak. We look to our leaders for strength, for affirmation, that what God's asking us to do can actually be done. That's mimiamai. Imitate that it can actually be done. There's a reason that I'm here. There's a reason why guys like me get promoted to these positions. It's a, you have someone to look at. Some of you can say, that guy inspires me. I don't mean in every way, because God knows I'm a moron in other ways, right? You can laugh. It's all right. But we're here for a reason. There's a reason why we're called leaders, because it implies followers. We look to our leaders for strength, for affirmation that what God's asking us to do can actually be done. When you don't feel like getting out of bed on a Sunday morning, all you have to do is think about the one standing faithfully behind the pulpit, taking all the shrapnel the same guy who has taken a few body blows from you personally over the years. The same guy who has willingly turned his cheek so you can punch him on the other side. Figuratively speaking, of course, I wouldn't try the other route. You say to yourself, if my pastor can do a job that I'd never want to be called to do, then I can do my job in the body of Christ. You know, there's nothing wrong with being inspired by another human being. Jesus was a human. Remember that. In fact, isn't this what we do every time we read our Bibles? Aren't we reading about people whose faith has made them victorious? Isn't that why we read the likes of Hebrews 11, the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith? Are we not inspired? Are we not inspired by young David? You'd have to be a... This is funny. This is how I write in my own head. 
You'd have to be a gelatinous amoeba. I'll let you sink that in there for a little bit. A little blob. How about that? A useless little globule. Not to be inspired by young David. Go to 1 Samuel 17.32. A gelatinous amoeba. Mm-hmm. It's probably pretty close. 1 Samuel 17.32. You think God doesn't give us leaders to inspire us? 1 Samuel 17.32. David said to Saul, Saul was still the king at this point, remember David's humility, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Imagine the, just stop reading for a moment. Imagine the scene. Young David, not even the biggest dude on the planet, young, considered a young boy, a shepherd boy. Everybody's running for the hills because Goliath is like nine feet tall, unbeatable. And David's like, What does he say? With complete confidence. What's our series? Our Lord is our confidence. With complete confidence. Is that not inspiring? When someone has that kind of confidence in the Lord? He says, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him. This makes me laugh. (laughs) I went out and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. (laughs) Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Inspired yet? Was David special? No. Was he an imposing figure? No. Does he inspire you? I sure hope so. Is that inspiration recorded in Holy Scripture for your benefit? I sure hope so. And you know what David was? A shepherd. And he had a shepherd's heart. David had a love for God that propelled him headlong into dangers that most people would run from without a second thought. So in closing, I'll finish this way. The secret to all of this is love. You might say, I don't see the connection. Well, allow me to assist you. I titled this part of my sermon, Falling in Love. Let me ask you married people a question. And if you're not married, let me ask the rest of you to think about your closest godly friend in the whole world. You say you love them, right? Well, how can you say that? And why are you willing to stand up for them when they become defenseless? Why them and not the next person in your life? The answer is pretty simple. You know them. You know them them. You consider them worthy to be protected by your love. You might express this as, well, I know their heart and it's good and I don't want to see 
it damaged. I know their heart, and it's good, and I don't want to see that precious thing damaged. You might say that you see something in them that you find incredibly attractive, and I'm not even speaking in a romantic way. And as a side note, I remind you of an old friend of ours in Holy Scripture that I taught a few years ago on this topic of the strength of non-romantic love. Go quickly to 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. I'm closing here, but I want to close the thought. It's just going to be about another 45 minutes. (laughs) I'm not feeling the love, people. 1 Samuel 18.1, I would argue, um, I'm not saying that this kind of love can't exist in a marriage or romantically or as the basis of a romantic relationship, but I would argue that uh, true friendship, this kind of love is the deepest of all. Uh, I think of Jesus, who was single, and I think of Paul. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. In other words, that's what sacrificial love Looks like, you're going to go do a thing? I want to be there to protect you. I love you. Jonathan wasn't gay, okay? But he loved David. His soul was knit to this man. I can't even say that if I had ever a chance to know David personally, that I wouldn't be like Jonathan, that I wouldn't love him the same way. And I'm not gay. Last time I checked... My point is that let's not confuse romantic love with love when I ask you to consider the act of falling in love. So let's cut to the chase here, and I swear I'm going to close here in a moment. We love because we know. We love because we know. 1 John 4, 16-19, our series title is The Lord is Our Confidence. Our confidence comes from our knowledge of the Holy One. Go to 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. We know, but we love because we know. 1 John 4.16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. You see how we know? We have to know first. And then we love. We love because we know. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God's always proving His love to us, is He not? How about this morning? You think all this was orchestrated by Ed Collins and and Todd Johnson and a few others? No. It was orchestrated by God for you. If you're here, you were supposed to be here. God's proving His love to you every single day. We're just so numb to it. It's gross what we do. But nonetheless, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. That's that sphere I alluded to earlier. 
By this, love is perfected, matured with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because uh, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And the point on the board, we love because we know. One more minute. You guys make it? You guys make it? I hope so, because I'm going to go. <laughs> I love you all because I know you personally, each one of you. And my favorite thing about each one of you, including members of my own family, is that I see Christ in you. It's my absolute favorite thing that I see in every single one of you, that I see Christ in you somehow, some way. Granted, it's true I love some more than others personally, but God has made it sufficient in each one of your cases. And I'll be honest, I don't always like you as individuals, especially when you're punching me, but that's not the point here, is it? Not at all. I'm sure you could say the same to me. You don't always like me, and for the record, I'm perfectly okay with that too. We love each other because we know each other, and to some degree, we trust each other's hearts. And to whatever that statement rings true, a.k.a. the more we know and love each other, the more we trust one another, the greater our confidence and reliance on each other becomes, and so on. Doesn't that sound like falling in love? That's how we fall in love with each other. And I'm not talking romantically. Again, to whatever degree we trust, know, and love each other, it's to that degree our confidence and reliance on each other grows, and so on. Isn't this, or isn't what we're all looking for some level of abiding comfort in one another? Isn't that one of the great things about falling in love with someone, even non-romantically, that you abide in a certain level of comfort? I mean, isn't that why we can rest in each other's company, whereas we can't in the company of ungodly folks? All of these things are necessarily true. We know, therefore, we love. And I guess I'll end with a principle that's been recurring all morning. And I, don't, I haven't been able to finish my uh, notes here, so take whatever you've learned and, and, and try to synthesize on your own time. I really do want to cut you loose now. But this is the principle that's been coming up. You can take it for what it is in your own soul. The hallmark of Christ-like love is selflessness. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the primary reasons why we have any confidence in Christ. Because who was more selfless in giving than Him? He gave it all. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this incredible privilege of studying Your Word here this morning. We just ask for Your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our own homes and the privacy and confidence of our own souls. We just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.